when I put my emotional center of gravity, my being okay in things and say, if I have these things, I'll be okay, then that's that dissatisfied mind consciousness. I'm okay if. Bill Wilson, co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, wrote in 1952, if we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root some unhealthy dependence and its consequent demand. Wilson suggested that if we could identify and continually surrender these unrealistic and unrealizable demands, that we may then be able to accomplish what he imagined to be the recovery's next frontier, something he called emotional sobriety. Flash forward 70 years and join psychotherapists and best-selling authors Tom Rutledge and Dr. Alan Berger, who have taken up the mantle of exploring Bill Wilson's new frontier. Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. This is Dr. Alan Berger, and I'm here today with Patrick Duman, and Tom has just taken a, a brief break uh, in order to, to pay his respects to his brother. So, um... Our love goes out to you, Tom. Uh, we're thinking about you and we're here for you, brother. Love you, Tom. We have a unique opportunity. First of all, it's Memorial Day. So we want to take a moment and uh, give thanks to all of those who have died defending our country. And there's a big list of those folks. And, and thank you for the ultimate sacrifice. And, you know, they say freedom comes with a heavy price, and many of you have paid the ultimate price, or many of those men and women have paid the ultimate price, and I'm very, very grateful, and I know you are, Patrick, too. What's so, your uh, What's your attitude as a veteran yourself? Uh, I mean, like, how do you feel um, on days like this? Well, this is, you know, a lot of people confuse this as kind of a, a day celebrating veterans, and and it's really not. It's a day really to to memorialize those who have died for our country. Um, Veterans Day is the day we celebrate veterans and their service, and, and, and that's a great day and it's important, but today is, is the day to really recognize that have paid the ultimate uh, price, the ultimate, made the ultimate sacrifice for our country. So it's a very important day because, you know, I love this country. I love our freedom. I love our democracy and, and and I, I think it is something worth defending and worth fighting for. And that's why I went in it very naively back in 1969 when in the Marine Corps. But, you know, my dad um, was a World War II veteran and he was a Bronze Star recipient. And so, you know, that patriotism is runs deep in my family. Very, very deep. So that's my thought about it. I was reading about today. I learned more about Memorial Day than I've ever known. It's a a day where a lot of people are confused about, and it, a lot of people feel it started in the Civil War or at the end of the Civil War, and really given, you know, think in really grieving those who have lost on both in both the North and in the South. And in fact, it was uh, a lot of the Southern women who would go and put their flowers on the graves of both the, the Confederate soldiers and Union soldiers that seemed to have start this celebration along with Abraham Lincoln. So, you know, it has some pretty deep roots in, in America, but it's also supposedly goes beyond this in terms of, you know, men who have fought for their country, you know, have always been, you know, um, celebrated and memorialized with people, you know, 
going to their graves and putting flowers on. Or today, as I drove by a few cemeteries, seeing the flags posted at the veterans' graves that have passed away for this country. So it's quite some, uh, quite a, quite an important day. Um, one of the more humbling kind of places I've been in my life is Arlington Cemetery because you just see the sea of graves. And um, there, yeah, there's just kind of a weight, you know, from just all these cumulative losses over generations. And uh, it's quite something. Well, I had that same experience when I went to Europe and I visited some of the cemeteries where the American soldiers were buried in Europe. And it was quite moving. I stood there with my son long, long time ago, and we stood there and looked at all of the men who gave their life to to stop Nazi Germany. And uh, it was quite, quite impressive. It really was very, very moving. Well, but today we're also celebrating something else, Patrick. And, and this is a unique opportunity for us, and I'm very excited about it, is that we get to talk to you about your experience with emotional sobriety, you know, because you got a birthday coming up. So tell us about your birthday. Yeah, thank you, Alan. And it's uh, wonderful to be here with you guys. Thanks for listening. Um, in a couple days on June 1st uh, will be four years of continuous sobriety um, from drugs and alcohol. Um, and the emotional sobriety component of my recovery has been so, uh, I mean, for me, I consider it life-saving because twofold, it's given me permission and latitude to kind of like reach for, for lofty goals and to know that if I, if I falter, <laughs> I won't fall on my face and I won't need to, you know, start drinking and using again to medicate my perceived failures. So, I mean, I think like it's a higher ceiling with emotional sobriety, with the work that I've been doing um, with the group and with Alan and uh, you know, with this podcast um, yeah, just more latitude to go further and to not see myself as a sick person, but as a liberated person. Yeah. So that's the emotional sobriety part, I guess. Well, you know, what you're saying is, is that it's, it's true is that one of the aspects or one dimension of emotional sobriety that I think is very important. It's not that we maintain our balance all the time in life and life just works out perfectly for us, but it's what happens when things don't work out so well and how do we deal with it? And what you're saying is, is that, you know, you've got some tools to help you recover, you know, your balance to help you recover your, your equanimity. Right. And let me just toss this out there is that, I mean, I've been, I've been thinking, especially these past couple of weeks, um, not only like, am I just so grateful that uh, this milestone is coming up so I can give myself a pat on the back and like observe kind of how amazing it is that I, me with all my problems have made it this far without, you know, re, re, re uh, returning to my go-to that was so self-destructive for so many years, but um, also just how much further I have to go because um, especially with how we've been exploring the concept of differentiation, I'm still very, un, un, very undifferentiated in many ways from, you know, these environmental stimuli uh, relationships that I struggle with, um, you know, uh, world events that I struggle with. And I, um, you know, I, I struggle a lot and I've, and I feel like I still have kind of like cravings for drugs and alcohol. I feel very vulnerable in certain ways and, you know, in ways that I, I always have been. And this is a condition that needs to be 
cultivated and, uh, you know, I, I need, I need to stay in action and to work on it because, um, you know, it's nothing that I've been cured of. And so I'm just very grateful to be here talking through and as well as honoring this, uh, sobriety milestone that's coming up and yeah, that's where I'm at. So, so when you say that you struggle with all the things that are going on in the world, can you give us an understanding of that, Patrick? What happens for you that that all of that has the impact it has on you? Well, um, expectations and unenforceable rules or unreasonable expectations and unenforceable rules that I place on America. <laughs> and um, like, what are some of those? Well, that um, that the sanctity of life will be prioritized above the needs of commerce and that um i'm sorry there's a little beep so uh but yeah the sanctity of life will be respected over commerce that's a big one i think i think just like hum humans matter and especially during the pandemic um and the way that that's been handled and the way that it still rages uh, but um you know for instance i've i've got to do some flying um coming up soon and uh you know, people are not required to wear their masks while they fly. And I'm going to be rolling those dice just like we all roll the dice whenever we go out in public with this uh, increased awareness now of the, you know, uh, bacterial sized things that could kill us. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think like I'm just I'm, I'm, I fear for the future. I, I fear um, I fear poverty. I feel dying in uh, an ecological disaster. I fear, um, you know, uh, I had some car trouble early, early this year. I got into a car accident and um, everything. It takes so long to get your car fixed these days that um, being without transportation for a while and living in a kind of rem remote area. Um, all this to say that there is a kind of in, uh, environmental um, instability that we're all living through these days. And I, um, you know, I'm an, an alcoholic and drug addict or I'm, I'm in recovery, but I think I just like, I have a, a sensitivity and a kind of like brittleness and especially when you spend a big thing is social media. I spend way too much time on social media and it kind of gives you this, um, kind of, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 it can sometimes kind of drill into your head. You know what I mean? All the wrongs that are happening in the world simultaneously <laughs> and you're just overly plugged in. And, um, and I think like, rather than, um, rather than being flexible, which is a key component of the emotional sobriety project, um, I can tend to get brittle and, um, and I think over-focus on that, which I can't control and that can unravel me emotionally sometimes. And, you know, that's, uh, I think that's something I, I'm in the process of getting a program together, you know, or, or kind of in, building on the program I already have to try and get through these problems in a more, uh, in a more like, in a way that's more conducive to, you know, recovery and emotional sobriety and these things that I'm striving towards. I imagine there's some listeners out there that find themselves feeling exactly what you're feeling. Their value too is to put life and humanity in front of commerce right so to speak and so when that doesn't happen or when you see signs that in some ways that that's not taking place in in our society 
how do you cope with that then? What do you do with that? Oh my God. Like I, I honest, honestly don't have a good answer for it because I'm, it's still, that response is still being born. Like I, one new thing that I'm doing is I'm, I'm trying to get involved in local politics. And um, it's funny because the, this uh, organization that I've been doing these Zooms with, one of the first questions they asked is what kind of change would you like to affect in your community to kind of help out with this broader project of bringing the world back from the brink or whatever. And um, it occurred to me that like, I don't know my community. I moved there in, in the midst of the pandemic. Most of my interactions are virtual. And I, but I, I say this because I imagine a lot of uh, people in America have the same problem, which is that there's a kind of disconnectedness and a kind of like, I don't even know where to begin because I don't have any, I don't, I don't know where this is. I don't know where I am. And I'm still building a kind of like a solidarity with the people that live close to me. And, um, and so I, I guess, yeah, what one answer is that um, I, you look for the fires that are closest to you that can be put out or that you can participate in the putting out of them and just try to be, take action, right? Action rather than um, just kind of passively, uh, uh, you know, feeling anxious and, and feeling powerless and, you know, um, fighting the battles that maybe you can win or at least the battles that where you can help kind of move the needle a little bit. And that's to the extent that I've been able to, you know, and, and by the way, this doesn't just apply to uh, my, uh, my, these, broader existential fears that I have um, in my uh, kind of political grousing. It's these meetings, it's this podcast, it's the work that I do where I have an opportunity to connect to others and kind of further a positive message. I think that that's um, been like absolutely vital in like keeping me from my own brink. Well, look, man, that's, that's, you said you weren't exactly sure how you cope with it. You just gave us a, a wonderful description of what you do. It's like you said, you don't just become the victim of what's happening, which is an easy thing to do, is you look at the situation and say, look, I don't like it and I'd like things to be different. What can I do in, in whatever way I can? You know, How can I, I throw my influence, however slight it may be, to try to tip the scale in the direction I'd like it to go. You know, I hope you're, you've heard that if you're listening to what Patrick is saying, is that when we're in a situation and we don't like it, instead of just complaining about it, and, you know, and, you know, which I'm not faulting anybody for, it's an important thing to, to complain, right? But, but to listen to yourself, right? It's not just to get other people to hear you, but to listen to yourself. And then use your feelings about what's happening to mobilize yourself into some kind of action, some kind of an appropriate action that's going to, you know, to help you feel like you're addressing the issue you're concerned about. So I think that that was a great example of what emotional sobriety is about, Patrick. I suppose um, the way I began my answer was just acknowledging how, like, um, I do a lot of flailing. <laughs> on my well, way towards a lot of people too don't realize it and i've heard this many times you know i'll ask people a question they're first thing i'm not so sure and then if i just wait a second all of a sudden they answer it and it's almost like we have to give ourselves pause for a minute 
and sort out what we're feeling. And that's what you did. And you came back and you described, you know, of a very, very important dimension of your emotional sobriety. I have a friend who was telling me about his ADHD recently. And um, I hope I don't overuse that A phrase, but it's uh, you cannot act, you cannot think your way to right action. You can only act your way to right thinking. And I, I suppose that folds into emotional sobriety as well, or there's uh, some areas of overlap, right? And that like, by I, I've only been able to make any headway in life by externalizing whatever my internal malady is and kind of right putting my hands on it. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. And, you know, mention something else. Sometimes even um, it's probably not continuous, but you said sometimes the urge to drink or use comes up for you. And how does emotional sobriety help you cope with that? Well, I suppose it's, I don't know. It's like, it's one of like a bunch of, um, it's like a, it's like one stick in a bundle of sticks that you tie together. And it's like this hard rod that's very difficult to break. And, um, I think that, uh, what I learn about, um, I'm, what I'm running away from when I crave a drink or a drug is I'm trying to avoid a feeling that I'm having. Um, and it's that I, I'm, ha I have some dependence on this person or this place or this, you know, whatever environment I find myself that it's not, um, aligning with my, uh, conception of what it should be <laughs> or that I'm not, uh, aligning with my conception of what should be. And, uh, because of that disjunction, there's like this, uh, bubbling up of anxiety, you know, rage, um, uh, shame, all these negative emotions. And then that is the thing that's pinging me and, and wanting me to medicate to do that. And I think like going through that kind of thought process or being aware that that thought process is occurring again and again and again, and then being able to name what's happening, uh, you know, it makes it so that like, I'm not just shooting from the hip, you know, I'm, I don't just go towards that negative, <laughs> that negative self-destructive action that I went historically have gone to time and time again that just that that's led me nowhere but ruined you know i'm able to kind of like watch this thing happening in my own mind and and then i have got like a laundry list of actions to take people to call you know i have a sponsor i've, I've got people that care for me people that rely on me to come through with certain things and those are like the many shields <laughs> standing between me and a relapse you know so i mean you know, to the extent I have any control over, you know, what, you know, what, what happens with all that. I mean, I just need to keep those shields in place, keep adding to them and improving them. And, and that's um, what's got me this far. Well, what you're describing that, that I think is another important dimension of emotional sobriety is self-regulation. You know, if, if we put a label on what you're experiencing, you're regulating yourself, meaning you're using the best of yourself to deal with this other side of you that wants to drink and use. And like you said, that that's a conditioned response. We can call it the alcoholic mind, the addict mind. You know, it says this is all terrible. It's a good reason to drink and use. And so it comes up with these ideas. Like you said, when you look at them, you know, is that going to solve the problem? No. See, the alcoholic mind or the addiction 
our addict self, it doesn't look to make situations better. I mean, it doesn't. It tells us they're going to be better. You know, and then when we go ahead and drink and use, then it comes back and says, God, look at what you did. You just made this all worse. It then comes back and criticizes us for the very thing it told us to do. And that's why we go crazy with it, right? Yeah, yeah. it's such, such a little asshole, that, that oh, uh, it, no, addictive it's, impulse. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a deadly game. It is, called, it is called addiction. And that addiction plays all of these kinds of games with us. And so what you're describing is, first of all, that you've separated yourself from that part of you. And see, that's the important thing, is that when we're in recovery, to realize that we're not just our addict mind or our alcoholic mind. You know, there's another part of us that, you know, what I like to think of is the best in us that can deal with that part. Now we lose sight of that because at one point with the disease, it becomes so, it takes over our whole life, right? It becomes so, so central to our being, right? That we have a hard time seeing that there's, you know, more to us than just our addiction. But at four years, you've had a chance to see that you're not just that part of you. There's another part of you and there's another part of you that's able to look at that part of you and to start to deal with it and recognize it. And, you know, what we say in emotional sobriety, part of self-regulation is you need to name it to tame it. You right. Name it to tame it. I, um, I feel like in my answer there, I may have been missing something central about emotional sobriety, but like my, my view of what it is and like what we're doing, it's like once you've achieved physical sobriety, emotional sobriety is like, it just defines what the work then becomes, which is, well, what was the personality? What were the personality traits that the, the deep things that moved you to that lifestyle for that's and, and, and that continually, continually move you towards these self-destructive impulses and kind of navigating just all like that tricky emotional stuff that, um, yeah, that just kind of like, you know, uh, sets you on a path to fail and that there's work that can be done to like, you know, re rewrite those pathways and to kind of like clean up some of that clutter. Right. That's kind of how I see emotional sobriety broadly. Well, I, I was at a meeting on Saturday and the speaker, Randy, was he was great. Someday I hope to get Randy on our show. You know, he talked about the uh, the disease and the, of, of alcoholism. And he talked about how it creates this alcoholic mind, right? That that's part of our disease. It's an allergy of the body and it's also a, 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 an obsession of the mind. And he says the obsession of the mind comes from what he called the the unsatisfied mind the mind that that where there's never enough of what we think we need to be okay you see and that mind will say things like well i need this i i i need i need a new girlfriend if i just had a new girlfriend and if she looked like this then i would be fine or i need a new car if i get if just get that new car you know, then I'm going to feel okay about myself or I need to drop 15 pounds, right? If I lose 15 pounds, I'm going to be okay with myself or I need to get that job. If I just had that other job or if my husband or partner acted this way, I would be okay. He calls that the unsatisfied mind. And he says, and even when we give ourselves the things that the mind, this part of our mind tells us we need, like we get that new car, the minute we get the new car, the mind goes, why did you get that car? 
You don't need a new car. Now you got this big payment. Now that now the unsatisfied mind or the dissatisfied mind, it becomes critical that we did get what it was telling us to get to be okay. And now it criticizes us that we got it because it says, well, if we didn't do this, we wouldn't have that payment and then we would have been okay. So it's always looking at what is not, right? Who we're not, what is not. And saying to us, if we have that, we'll be okay. And then when we get it, it looks at what that means and points out how that's not going to do it, that we should have done something else. And so we're never satisfied. I love that Russell Brand, I was in a meeting that he was in recently, and he pointed to how, um, you know, in some of these rooms, you'll find an ex-Beatle and you'll find somebody who's been to the moon. <laughs> and if they haven't been able to find an external solution, you know, for whatever this thing is, then, you know, that should say something about like what, what the battles that we're fighting. That's right. That's right. That's the battle. And so our job is, is part of the self-regulation and emotional sobriety is to deal with this dissatisfied mind, right? This unsatisfied mind where, you know, it's, it's, I say we're addicted to more is the way I've described it. If I just had more, I'd be okay. Right. I am more, the more I have and see all of that's this, this incredible obsession as you, you know, talked about it. If we start to, to integrate, you know, the cultural, you know, issues that go on for in terms of our personality in our society i am more the more i have i mean it's so linked to materialism because that's you have to have people that want more if capitalism is going to work you can't have people satisfied 100 percent, right if you have satisfied people they're not going to want to get more you got to have people that say i need that new car to be okay i need that new technology i mean I need that new phone. Look at what that new phone can do. It takes a better picture than the one I got. You know? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was, uh, I was watching uh, Mad Men the other day. And I think that's something that Don Draper says, the kind of consummate ad man, right? Is that there's no such thing as happiness. There's just, you know, the moments between what you have now. And then when you, you're seeing, you're looking at the thing that you want to have and, uh, you know, on your way to having it. But of course, you know, I think Don Draper is an alcoholic as well as like, you know, the personification. Well, like, you know, of that whole, <laughs> Right. That whole thing about the advertising, right. And, and marketing, you know, a great example of this is that people never realized that they needed Q-tips. And now you're not going to find a household in America that doesn't have Q-tips. And when you're running low, you got to get to the store and get some Q-tips. And they went through this whole campaign back in the early 1900s when Q-tips came into, you know, into production and into being when they were invented, that, that the whole marketing was to help convince us how important those Q-tips were in terms of our health and beauty. That's so funny. I, I, look, I, I think Q-tips are incredible. I mean, I use them. You know, I use them all the time. But that's the kind of thing is that marketing will help us develop a need for something that we didn't even know we needed. But right. now we must have, right? Now we got to have it. We must have that new iPhone, right? We got to do that. You know, we got to have the new computer. We got to have this, that. I mean, you know, look at clothes, same thing. Mm -hmm. I need to stay up with the trend. If I'm going to be cool, I've got to be, I've got to have the most trendy clothes. You know, one of my, one of the gifts of, because now I can look at them as gifts, four years in, it was, it took me a while to get here, but, um, 
of what I lost in my addiction and the missteps I made while I was in my addiction. I uh, ran up a bunch of credit cards, buying clothes um, that I didn't need because I wanted to look a certain way. And, yeah. uh, and recently I, I you know, the one thing that happened, those, all those cool t-shirts you wear, or is that, Oh no, that's, well, I mean, I suppose that's still a kind of vanity, but I figure t-shirts, you know, that's so like, that wasn't your t-shirt part. It was a different phase. Huh? No, no, this is, I, this is, I feel like my, uh, you know, whatever, uh, whatever closest to pajamas I can get, get away with wearing in uh, everyday life. You know, that's what I'm about these days. But I, I think, um, so yeah. back then, what, what were you buying? What, what kind of clothes were you buying? Oh, I would go to Nordstrom's or I would, you know, like whatever. I'd read the latest issue of GQ and I'd see like some watch or some, you know, kind of, uh, you know, um, yeah, yeah. kind to, of tailored shirt. That, right. I have to have that to be cool. Yeah. And I mean, it was just um, but what I was doing it was another form of like, you know, my med- my internal emptiness. I was trying to kind of medicate with. Uh, these external things. And, um, I, uh, you know, it's made me really wary of when I swipe that card on anything these days. And, uh, because, you know, yeah, I have to interrogate, like, what is this really about? You know, is this about, I had a fight with my girlfriend earlier and I feel shitty about myself. So, uh, you know, if I just, uh, you know, buy this, uh, you know, ridiculous dinner or, um, you know, a new piece of electronics, <laughs> you know, is it about the electronics or is it just about, um, some work I need to do on, uh, something that's hurting on the inside. So, yeah, no, no, I, I, you're right on man. Cause Bill Wilson even said it. In, I think he said it in the big book when he was writing, he says there was never enough, or maybe in a 12, I think it was a 12 and 12, he goes, there was never enough of what we thought we needed. There was never enough of what we thought we needed. That's the, that's the dissatisfied mind, right? There's never enough of what we thought we needed. And, and part of, emo, you know, a big, big aspect or dimension of emotional sobriety is dealing with those feelings, dealing with the dissatisfied mind. Yeah. And, you know, what inspires me is, um, and I mean, it's just why it's why it's so valuable that I'm connected to you. I'm connected to Tom and some of these other people that have been around for a while is that like, while this is a condition that needs maintenance and, you know, you, you never, the work never ends. I do see kind of like from your sustained practice and, you know, and education on these things, you have gotten a lot better at managing these things. And you don't all, you don't live in quite as a harsh of a hurt locker of anxiety and, you know, uh, strife. Right. And so that's something I, I mean, I, I know that, you know, I, I can't ever cure myself, but I, I can keep working towards, you know, a better and better, more secure kind of place or a more, more emotionally balanced place. Maybe that's the better well, way. what you're describing. And I think everybody it's important to stop for a minute is that when I put my emotional center of gravity, my being OK in things and say, if I have these things, I'll be okay, then that's that dissatisfied mind consciousness. I'm OK if. Roger Andes and in, in on Thursday night said, only if, if only if I had this or that, then I would be fine. It's a mentality that Chris Stretch, may he rest in peace, described as a mentality of contingency. My well-being is always contingent on these other things happening a certain way. And, you know, this is very important for us to become aware of this and to start to see it 
so that we can now challenge that part of us and not go along with that, thinking that's the road to happiness and and to peace and freedom, right? And it's not. It's the road to imprisonment, right? That's going to take you for deeper and deeper into that prison of more, right? If only I had this, I'd be fine. There is no if I only had this. You'll be fine when your well-being depends on you, not a, depends on what you have, you know, not doesn't depend on more, but depends on acceptance and learning how to cope and deal with what is right now, learning how to be okay with who you are and what you have right now. Because if you're not okay with right now, you're not going to be okay with the future. No matter what you get, it's not going to make you okay. Absolutely. Um, I, um, I think one, one quality that the addictive voice takes on is telling you that uh, nobody understands what you're going through. Uh, oh, another one. That's right. <laughs> that's part of the dissatisfied mind. Nobody understands you. Right. And, um, you know, I, I milestones like the one that I have coming up, if, if they're good for nothing else, they're good for uh, reminding me, you that, uh, this is the hardest, one of the hardest things we've ever had to do. <laughs> and uh, it's, and it is important because I think that sometimes, uh, you know, a, a voice will nag at me saying, well, you know, what have, what have you really accomplished? You know, if a tree falls in the forest, <laughs> doesn't make a sound, but well, um, your tree has fallen and it's made a lot of sounds. And, you know, you've, you've said that, I mean, look at, you know, I've known you for these four years, man, I've gotten, a, had the, the honor to be able to witness your recovery up close and personal. And I've seen the changes that have taken place in you from a guy that was incredibly insecure, could hardly look me in the eye when we first met to someone who's, you know, you're becoming your own person, man. You know, you're making contributions, you're standing on your own two feet in many areas of your life. You've been in a relationship with a, a beautiful woman with Maddie and, and and you've embraced the struggles and used them to, you know, I say you've used the heat of the relationship to forge a better relationship and to forge better, you know, parts of yourself to learn how to hold on to yourself better and challenge some of your expectations. You know, I've seen a I've seen you really integrate a lot of the principles of emotional sobriety into your life and how you live. It feels great to hear all that. Um, and it's, it incentivizes me to keep going because, um, you know, uh, a couple of things are true. I mean, I think all those things are true. And then the other thing that's true is that there is a, um, what's, what's the word, a headwind, whatever's blowing against that to kind of like, there is still a, a strand of myself that exists that just wants to discount all that shit and just a dissatisfied you know, mind. I, yeah. I should be further along. Mm -hmm. I should be here. I should be there and see, and we got to really, really stay aware, you know, put a little guard at the gate of our mind. When that part of our mind starts to come in, part of our self starts to come in and, and, and have all this self-talk about how, if only we had this, we'd be okay. Well, I'm going to personify that guard in my mind. I'm going to make him look like Jason Momoa. And I'm just going to stand there. That's, that's, like yeah. He's amazing. He's, yeah. he's an amazing <laughs> actor. He's an amazing guy. My God. Now, see, if I looked like him, I think I'd be okay. Yeah. No, you know, okay. despite look everything you just said. Yeah. He's got this. I mean, look, if we go look behind the, 
the facade, you know, I'm sure if we had him or if I had him in my office, I would see who he's not and how he's struggling too, despite his great success. Right. Pant, everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time, right? We have a lot of a lot of people that love this guy say, I'd like to help him put his pants on. <laughs> yeah, or take them off. Yeah. Or take them off. That's, that's even better. That's right. Yeah. Like, let me help him take his pants off, right? <laughs> well, well, this has been great, Patrick. Happy birthday, man. Congratulations. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. And we're looking forward to uh seeing you all next week. And yeah, Tom, Tom will be Brett. back next week. And um We'll be continuing our exploration of emotional sobriety. And please, you know, if you enjoy what we're doing here, please share with other people. Tell them about our podcast. And and uh, and we'll look forward to seeing you then. Tinge your life. Tinge your myth. Cultivate your narrative with whomever you're with. Then with glass in hand and children on one knee. Bring some stories. Bring your stories back to me It ain't a crime to be a human Never be ashamed to be yourself Rest assured that whatever you're doing Will entertain me like nobody else So here's to us, my old friends Till it's time to drink the wine and break the bread again With glass in hand and children on one knee Bring some stories, bring your stories back to me